this morning. Glad that uh, I actually eventually made it. One of those days, uh, you know, I don't know what it is with Sundays. You guys ever experienced the Sunday thing? Didn't bump with my wife this morning, though, which was absolutely phenomenal. Got up, plenty of time to get things squared away. Sermon was done uh, pretty much early on in the week. Finished it up last night. Go to Starbucks to pick up Jackie's soy latte. Then it dawns on me, did I put my notes in the bag? Needless to say, I didn't. I had to run all the way back, but uh, God is good. Things have gone good so far today. Super appreciate our uh, new addition to the family here in South Bay, Martina and Tina. What an incredible addition. Hopefully our, our teen ministry is starting to uh, get a taste as to who they are and are being an encouragement as prayerfully the rest of us as parents are. Uh, this weekend's been kind of an interesting weekend so far. Friday started out, as many of you know, uh, it's Jackie's birth month. And uh, it's coming to a close here. I, I don't know what she's going to do when February hits. Got a phone call from uh, our son Stephen, 6.30 in the morning on uh, Friday. I usually get my 6.30 in the morning calls from Calvin Johnson. Stephen kind of beat him to the punch on Friday. And uh, very, very sobering. Uh, situation, in that uh, he has a uh, friend of his who was living with him in Long Beach, He's had some challenges, he was going through CR, uh, was studying the Bible, and uh, Stephen called us Friday morning to let us know that he had died of a heroin overdose. The young man was 26 years old, and I, I think as a dad, it just really hit home on a just a very, very emotional level, he's obviously the same age as our son. And I think in light of what we're about as a church, it, just, it, it helped instill in me an incredible degree of gratitude for what I have in Christ and the chains that Jesus has allowed me to break as long as there's that focus and that reliance on Him. It just, it just boggles my mind that someone so young could be dealing whatever the demons were that he was dealing with, and that would be the outcome. As a parent, I couldn't even begin to imagine what it would be like to receive that phone call. Uh, the things did brighten up a little bit as the day progressed, though. We were able to uh, take Jackie out for her birthday, went to uh, Terrania. For those of you that have birthdays coming up, a hot tip here. Anybody like surf and turf? You show up on your birthday with your ID, and guess what? It's free, and it's legit. It actually panned out. I thought there was going to be some kind of clause or something after it was all said and done, but I had a great evening with the family, and then Saturday morning rolled around, and we had our first young Christians class since we've been down here, which was super, super encouraging. Uh, I love the span of spiritual ages. We had them still wet behind the ears uh, with Gustavo and Denise. I think I guess it was about six days, seven days in the Lord for them. And obviously those in the room that have been around a little bit longer, I think Jackie and I were the cap for that at uh, 21 years of uh, spiritual age, but... It was such an incredibly bonding time when we, we, we sat around, we shared about who we were and our conversions and uh, our victories as Christians, our struggles and challenges as, as Christians. And I'm glad to see I'm not the only one with anger issues. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I think it was great having that kind of common ground, though, and realizing that a lot of us deal with a lot of similar situations through life and I think, you know, this is the thing I love about family, is we can be real with each other, we can be vulnerable, and I think with that we have the ability to really help each other move forward in life. Amen? Oh, see here. Oh, well, we got the Super Bowl next week. Right? I haven't been following things too closely. Uh, obviously, my Steelers uh, 
met their demise a little earlier in the season. What was that about Tebow? I don't think he's in the mix anymore either, is he? Hopefully there'll be a place for Kyle Williams next year on the team. Uh, Ken Chow in the house? Ken's not in the house. Must be out visiting somewhere. I just want to say, guys, go easy on him. He was devastated last week after the whole situation there with the 49ers. I was kind of feeling it for him. There were a couple other brothers there that were watching with us. I don't know that they had quite the same degree of compassion. But uh, anyways, moving right along here this morning, we're talking about being restored. You know, I'll watch it next week. I'll try and have some friends out to watch the game with me. But uh, we are talking about just returning to Christ. This is obviously return to me was a the theme this month. Uh, the title of the lesson this morning here is Restored, the Journey Back to Paradise. And with that, probably a good idea to start by defining what it means to be restored. Amen. As you can see on the screen here behind me, behind me it's a verb. It means to bring back or to reinstate, return someone or something to a former condition, place, or position. Well, you may be wondering this morning, okay, well, what do we have to be restored to? Brian talked about this a little bit last week. I thought it was going to throw me a major curve verb. I'm having some issues here this morning. <laughs> curve verb. Curve ball. Maybe I'm not doing quite as well as I thought. You know, I'm, I'm a little worried about this not having a cover on it either with the way I kind of cruise around out here and there's no mosh pit to catch me. But anyway, Brian started out in the book of Genesis last week and I was a little concerned. It's like, oh great, that's what I was going to do. I thought that was kind of a novel concept with this whole thing. But we do know that in the garden, God really in, established this incredible situation for us, for men, for women, paradise. And, you know, we have this little thing that we, we talked about a little bit in our young Christian class yesterday called pride. A little arrogance, you know, kind of slips in the mix. And what happened with Adam and Eve? They, they were banished. They were banished from, the, from uh, the paradise there, the Garden of Eden. You know, I was trying to find images that kind of summarize it for me. This one probably won't do it quite as well because of the light up here. But a particular slide I pulled up, it's almost like three-dimensional. I don't know about you, I love getting out in the outdoors, I love hiking, I, I love seeing what God's created for us, and I can't even begin to imagine what heaven's going to be like based on some of the beauty that we have right here, that we have the opportunity to live in each and every day, even more so here in California, summer, in January. But when it comes down to the whole thing, what's the situation with res restoration? You know, what do we need to be restored to? Well, I think first and foremost, it starts with relationship with God. Peter in 1 Peter 5 says in verse 10, in his kindness, God called you to share in his eternal glory by means of Christ Jesus. So after you have suffered a little while, he will restore, support, and strengthen you, and he will place you on a firm foundation. You know, it just amazes me the lengths that God was willing to go to so that I could have a relationship with him, that there would be the hope of being restored to paradise. And he is, even as Martin and uh, Tina shared this morning, just being a part of a, an incredible family. You know, a lot of us have dealt with a lot of dysfunction through the years, and there's going to be some of that that slips into the kingdom because we're here. But God gives us this incredible means of bonding with each other, having true relationships, deep, meaningful relationships, and ultimately where that can go. So the grace of God ultimately 
equals restoration with him through Christ. That was a passage that uh, most of us are probably familiar with. I don't know what happened with the guy back when I was younger that used to show up with a rainbow wig and, you know, he'd hold up the little sign, John 3.16, at all the different sporting events. Most of you are familiar with this passage. Can you help me fill in the blanks as we go through this this morning? For God so... That he gave his one and only... That whoever will not have, or will not but have. We're, we're all very familiar with this passage. Now, you know what the most memorized passage in the Bible is? Well, actually this next one here. That, that's a good one, Elaine. I may not be able to see you, but I can hear you. God helps those that help themselves, right? Most of us are familiar with that? Is it in the Bible? No, it's not. It was kind of funny. Banna Institute did this research. And that was actually the number one memorized verse in the Bible. God helps those that help themselves. Good old Ben Franklin, right? And I think this is the thing with, with Christianity today. It's kind of like sporting events. Jesus has a lot of fans. But Jesus has very few followers. You know, the thing with fans is they cheer when things are going well. I didn't hear Ken Chow doing a lot of cheering last weekend. He's probably still a 49ers fan, but you know. And the other thing about fans is that they can walk away when things get difficult, when there's a difficult season. And I think sometimes what we can do is we can confuse admiration with devotion. Luke 9, verse 23, most of us in this congregation are pretty familiar with it. You guys want to help me with this one? Then he said to them, all, if anyone, which means everyone, right, would come after me, he, and take up his, and follow me. You ever wonder why we don't see that on placards anywhere? Why, why isn't that held up at the Super Bowl? Or, you know, behind home plate at baseball games? What's the issue with that? You know, hey, Brian, you're dead on. What's the reason? Requires action. You know, the reality, though, when it comes to John 3.16 and Luke 9, verse 23, is they have to go together to have an actual understanding, an accurate understanding of the gospel's invitation. John 3, 16 focuses on what? Believing. What do we see in Luke 9? Luke 9 follows, focuses on following. You gotta believe in order to follow. In order to follow, you gotta believe. They, they, they are inter, they, they've gotta be melded together. What I wanna do this morning, some of you that have known me for a while, most of you here obviously about a year and a half, some of you know me longer than this, Please don't be disappointed. I'm going to camp out on Luke 9, verse 23 today. I only have a handful of scriptures, so you've already gotten two of them. I know it's a major revelation coming from me. But I really feel like there's some incredible things that I was able to pull out of this verse, and it's not quite as, it doesn't have this ominous looming over our head kind of thing to the extent that I think some people can feel. Luke 9 is an incredibly powerful passage, and I do want to spend some time breaking it down this morning. As we can, we see here, I've got some things in bold that I think are really, really important. 
Obviously, we covered the first one, if anyone. Who's Jesus addressing here? He's addressing all of us, all that will follow him. He says, come after me. We know that we need to deny ourselves. We know that we need to take up our cross daily, and ultimately, we need to follow him. And what Jesus does here in this passage is he lays out the terms for true followers. Not fans, but disciples of Jesus Christ. And again, I think the thing that we, we can see here is that it applies to anyone, to everyone. Kind of bold there behind me. This is, this is really the, the thing that Jesus wants each and every one of us to do, is to come after him. Now, how many marrieds here remember the thrill of the chase when you uh, first started pursuing or being pursued prior to getting married? Most of us? It was incredible. I mean, it was so, for me, it was just so emotionally charged on so many different fronts. Um, I think most of you know Jackie and I dated for a super long time. I think there were many, many years involved there before we got married. Actually, not the case. And that may have been why the uh, adrenaline rush was so constant in that reconnected. I had known her for a while, but we'd both been engaged to other people. Uh, I had sworn off women. She had sworn off men. Uh, it's at the point in time that we ran into each other, but uh, I, I was smitten from day one. It's about a uh, 30-day period that we dated, and uh, I popped the question to her by asking her if she had an aversion to engagement rings. You know, I, well, one of those things with it, I, I didn't know it at the time, but I was a salesman. There's just ways of wording things to kind of set yourself up for the victory, you know? Justin, you out there, you, you understand where I'm coming from, you feel me? But it's, it was, it was incredible, because she told me that she didn't. Needless to say, she had a panic attack there shortly thereafter, kind of pulled over to the side of the road and realized that I just proposed to her, had a ring for her that night, and, uh, a month later we eloped and were married. I don't advise you to do it that way. We, we were set up for disaster. There were some disastrous things that took place in the first couple of years, but thank God, Five years into our marriage, we were met by Bruce and Nora Teague, and that really kind of shifted the direction that our lives were going, which would have been rather abysmal without Christ in our lives. But, you know, just all the different, I remember the cards and the, you know, she'll exaggerate the length of some of the phone calls that I, when I called her. Uh, I remember one night in particular where I called to let her know that I loved her, and uh, I, it took me probably, what, four hours to build up to it? Yeah, I mean, like, you know, she, she's not feeling it. She said it was ridiculous. But anyway, <laughs> after sweating it for that length of time, literally knowing me, I was probably sweating. I don't remember exactly. But uh, what did she do after I kind of whisper it and get it out of my mouth? What did you say? I didn't hear you. What did you say? She made me repeat it. What the heck is up with that? But, you know, and this ultimately, when we think about this, the, the romance, the pursuit, the, the emotions that are involved really kind of blew me away when I broke this down. I spent some time in the Greek with this. And as you can see behind me, it's thaleopizomu-ercheste, desires after me to come. Jesus wants us to be desirous of this relationship with him. It's an emotional connection. It, it's you obviously come after me. But, you know, you think about it, you put it into the context here that it was actually written originally he wants us to understand what an incredible opportunity, what an incredible relationship 
is waiting for us. And that's the approach. He's describing the passionate pursuit of someone you love. The kind of pursuit that consumes all of our thoughts, all of our resources, all of our energy, all of our time. This is Jesus' expectation when he says, come after me. You know, we think about this today in society when it comes to romance. You know, kind of throw out a kind of a metaphor here. You've got a man and woman that are dating. It's getting serious. She gets to the point where she's thinking, this is the guy. You know, the whole put a ring on it thing. Wants to get married. But he, uh, you know, not so much. He doesn't want to lose her, but he doesn't want to really commit. So what's the, what is it that's thrown out there? Well, you know, yeah, I kind of sort of love you. Why don't we just move in together? You know, let's cohabitate. Which basically translated means, how about I get all the benefits of marriage without any of the commitment or sacrifice? And ultimately, that's a fan's approach to Jesus. Hey, why don't we just move in together? You know, when it comes to fans, individuals that really aren't interested in having a restored relationship with God, they're, they're guilty of offering these two kinds of vows to Jesus. Well, I'll follow you as long as things are good. And you know, Jesus, you've got to hold up your part of the deal, man, or I'm out. Well, you know, I'll follow you as long as you don't expect a whole lot out of me because, you know, I'm not into the whole commitment thing. You know, when it comes to our marriages, if you've lost that, you know, lost that love and feeling. Any experience that ever? You know, things maybe aren't exactly being excited there, babe. I'm just going to leave that one alone. But, you know, how do we... Get the romance back into the marriage. We've got to go back and do the things we did at first, right? You know, the cards, the flowers, the, the, the nice little notes, the encouraging hugs, kisses. I mean, all the things that we used to make the time to do that somehow have gotten crowded on out. And you know, if that's the situation with Jesus, guess what? You've got to get back to those things that you did at first. Some of you, maybe you never done them. And I think you'll see by the end of the message today, today's probably as good a day as any to get it going. Amen? In Jeremiah 2, verse 2, this is one of those other passages. God says through Jeremiah, I remember the devotion of your youth, how as a bride you loved me. You know, isn't it interesting that God uses a number of times throughout the Bible the example of love between a husband and a wife? Why do you think that is? Something we can relate to. Most of us can comprehend that. And ultimately, that's what God wants from us. What He offers and what He wants can be so much deeper to us personally if we're willing to do more than just shack up with Him. But repent and do the things that we did at first. Deny self. Not, not something that excites us a whole lot. Yeah, it, it's hard. You know, uh, beginning of the year, how many of you have made resolutions to kind of get back into shape? I'm, I'm fired up. I lost 30-something pounds last year. I lost another 17 this year. I'm at the lowest weight I've been since 1984, which, uh, you know, the bottom line, though, there's some stuff that I love to eat that ain't happening. 
There's things that I got to do in the gym that I never had to do. I hate cardio. But you know, it's it's a reality. I'm 53 years old. It kind of goes with the territory now. It's harder. There's more denying now than there was 20, 30 years ago. Now, one of the upsides of losing weight, getting back into shape, my BMI is at about 4,400 calories, so I can eat 3,000 to 3,500 calories a day, and you know, not put any on. Gotta no. You know, I was at the gym a couple days ago. This guy pulls up in an M5 Beamer, a little heavy, has a hard time getting out of the car. Guess what he had in his hand? A blizzard! It was kind of interesting because he reached in to get his bag, put his bag on top of his car. I'm on the elliptical trainer doing my thing. He uh, reaches back in, pulls out the blizzard. I'm like, dude, are you kidding me? I love blizzards. But what I don't love is what you got up here. 60-down blizzard, 1,320 calories. I don't even know you could put this much saturated fat in 16 ounces. 26 grams of saturated fat. Total of 52 grams of fat. That's crazy. Guy goes into the gym. I'm watching him. (laughs) I wasn't watching him in the locker room, but he went into the locker room. I don't know what he was doing there. He was in there for about 20 minutes. Yeah, you know, I think it was, well, actually, I saw him not, literally, this is not an exaggeration. <laughs> Getting those last couple of drops, man, because he was going to go burn it off. You know how long he worked out? 15 minutes. He was in the locker room longer than he was in the gym. It, you know how many calories you need to burn to get rid of one pound of fat? Who said that? Oh, come on, Jerry! Jerry's feeling me. 3,500 calories. What that means is, if you want to lose one pound in one week, Jerry, how many calories a day? 500. 500 calories a day is what you got to give up to burn one pound of fat. Now, for me, at 200 and wherever I'm at now, about 218 pounds, for me, let's see, from a standpoint of calories, what are we dealing with here? A workout, an average workout for me at an hour... I'm going to burn maybe 400, just, this is weights, this isn't cardio, about 450 calories. That means I would have to work out three hours just to stay ahead of that stinking blizzard. We're not in a denying self. But you know, that is what Jesus calls us to. You know, I feel a lot better at the weight I'm at today. And it's the same thing when it comes to where we're at spiritually. To deny self is the Greek term... A parniome. Deny has the meaning of disowning or renouncing. You know, basically, I denounce myself. I'm going to disown my former self based on whatever the things are that I'm looking to change. Self-denial is basically turning away from self-centeredness. And Paul totally understood this in Romans 6.4. It's kind of similar to the context towards believers. The Apostle Paul writes that we have been buried with him. Buried with Christ. We've died. We've renounced our own old way of life. Galatians 2 verse 20, the Apostle Paul develops this idea of being crucified with Christ. Allowing Christ within him. You know, getting rid of uh, selfishness, self-righteousness, self-centeredness. Saul died and was replaced by the Apostle Paul. 
living by faith in the Son of God. You know, I think the thing that he really had an understanding of, bottom line here, is if God loved me enough to give himself for me, then he loves me enough to live out his life in me. And isn't that what we have through the Holy Spirit? You know, denying self is one of the basics to true faith. Not works, not legal obedience, but denying oneself will lead us forward into an awesome life with Christ. You know, in the, in the real estate uh, arena, there's a thing called a quit-claim-deed. And this quit-claim-deed form is something that you use to sign over your rights to property once you, that you may have once had a share in. Now, when you sign a quit-claim-deed, you're basically surrendering all your rights, all your property, to whoever you're signing it over to. You know, the thing that's really cool is when Jesus calls us to follow him, for those of you in real estate, you're going to wish this was the case. I know you do when it comes to the paperwork I've seen my wife crank through through the years. Not a whole lot of paperwork involved in following Christ. But, you know, he is looking for that quit claim deed. Ultimately, that's when we make the decision that we're going to be more than just a fan, that we are going to be a follower, and we're willing to sign over our car, our house, our bank account, our careers, our marriage, our children, our future, and anything else that we once laid claim to. Got to come on. Got an amen. This is the reality behind denying ourselves. If Jesus Christ is truly Lord of our life, guess what? He's Lord of all those things. They're His. This is one of the reasons you don't see that that placard at sporting events. People don't want to hear about this. But what's so amazing is by never really being vested in Christ, by never really signing that quit claim deed, guess what? He's powerless in your life. And that's why people don't make the transition. They don't see the change. They don't see the upside of a life with Christ. Unless, like Tina, you've got a family member that's a light. You realize, you know what? Why is it the rest of the family's this way, and I've got this aunt that's this way? What's going on there? You know, saying yes to following Jesus, I had a number of individuals in the congregation I sent this email out to. Saying yes to following Jesus meant saying no to what? And these are some of the responses I got back. Saying yes to following Jesus meant saying no to loneliness and hopelessness. Saying yes to following Jesus meant saying no to selfish ambition and pride, not being open. Selfishness, greed, and insecurity. The desire to live a selfish life of pursuing comfort and caring about no one but me. Using my life experiences and current feelings as my standard in decision making. And then finally, saying yes to following Jesus meant saying no to a godless, faithless, self-reliant, pride-filled, lonely, filthy, rich, and miserable, all-about-me lifestyle. That individual, I think, had a little bit of an opinion about what life was like before Christ. But you know what? There was a little wrestling that went on. There were a few bouts with the Bible that took place. He was willing to follow. He was willing to passionately pursue Jesus Christ. So saying yes to following Jesus meant saying no to all these different things that empower us, all these different things that Satan uses to go after us. But ultimately saying yes to following Jesus meant saying yes to a life of purpose, life to the full. Uh Uh-oh, this is a biggie. Take up that cross and follow me daily. You know, we think of crosses. What come to mind? The beautiful cross. Crown jewels. Monuments. Crosses on hilltops. 
There's some amazing crosses. Bling! There was some serious bling, man. There was fine. There were crosses I found on the internet around the neck that were going for a million to ten million dollars. But ultimately, the only cross that really matters, the truly beautiful cross, is the cross that Jesus Christ was crucified on. That's the beautiful cross. You know, it's amazing what Jesus is willing to endure for us. And we think about the Romans, it's really kind of crazy the extent that they were willing to go to with Jesus and that crucifixions are costly. You beat someone to death, cut off their head, slip them a little hemlock to drink. But the crucifixion of Christ required a minimum, all crucifixions required a minimum of four guards and one centurion. A little bit of a time commitment involved. The individual that's being crucified had to get that cross on out to wherever it was going. Think the Romans were trying to make a point? They were totally trying to make a point. Public statement. Public humiliation. This Jesus Christ guy, he's nobody. He's worthless. He's garbage. He's powerless. He was spit on, beat, mocked, killed on a cross. And you know, that's one of the things that makes me so grateful for the calling that it's been given to me. I am so unworthy. Yet Jesus would say, come. You can do it. Pick up your cross. Follow me. I've already done it. Because of that, you've got a relationship with God. You're pure and blameless in the sight of God. Philippians 2, we know that Jesus was creator, savior, king of kings. The one who had everything was willing to become nothing. This was the price that Jesus was willing to pay in order to restore us to paradise. There's a lot of junk theology floating around out there today that points to the difficulties that are being evidenced that, you know, what it, what it really means to follow Jesus. And I think because of that, we've got a lot of watered down theology today. The biblical reality is that when you say yes to following Jesus, you are saying yes to carrying your cross. And then at times, you know what? Crosses aren't like the ones we saw before this one. They are painful. The difference is that if we're true followers of Christ, we're not walking alone, but with a Savior that more than understands what we're going through and is really cheering us along as we go. You know, the question we need to ask ourselves this morning is, am I really carrying a cross if there's no sacrifice for suffering? When has following Jesus, when's the last time it cost you something? Maybe a relationship? Promotion? Vacation? When's the last time you were mocked for your faith? Went without a meal for the sake of the gospel? Does following Jesus cost you anything? Does it cost you anything today? See, if you're not at least a little uncomfortable, there's a good chance you aren't carrying a cross. And it's unfortunate, but many churches today have found that the message of the cross is uncomfortable. That the cross is offensive. So as a result, there are many fans out there that call themselves followers, but they're not carrying their cross. You know, and I need to be careful personally. We need to be careful that we don't rob the cross, the gospel, of its power. Any of you remember a pharmacist by the name of uh, Robert Courtney? 
back in the early 2000s. Robert Courtney was a deacon in his church. Was a uh, PK, preacher's kid, growing up. Huge contributor to his church. Pledged over a million dollars to this church fund, this church building fund. You may remember him now because he was also known as the toxic pharmacist. According to law enforcement agencies at the time, estimates from 1990 to 2001, Courtney diluted 98,000 prescriptions, which were given to 4,200 patients. Courtney is reported to have diluted 72 different kinds of drugs. In August 2001, two months before his arrest, Courtney held total assets worth $18.7 million. 2002, he pleaded guilty to 20 federal counts of tampering and adultery, uh, adulterating the chemotherapy drugs Taxol and Gemzar. He also acknowledged that he and his corporation, Courtney Pharmacy, Inc., had weakened drugs, conspired to traffic in stolen drugs, caused the filing of false Medicare claims. He was sentenced to 30 years in federal prison. Courtney was also named as a defendant in approximately 300 suits for fraud and wrongful death. In one case, the jury awarded plaintiff Georgia Hayes a judgment in the amount of $2.2 billion. For the sake of his own personal gain, he diluted medication to the point where it would not help his patients. I think ultimately we can do the same exact thing with the Word of God. You know, I, I never want to ever be accused of diluting the Word. You know, I'm accountable to a lot higher authority than he was, the feds. I'm accountable before God. And I think Paul understood this in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 18 when he said, The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved is the power of God. You know, commitment sometimes seems a little challenging, but I think ultimately the thing that we all need to remember is what Jesus Christ has done for us personally. Feeling proud? Remember the gospel. Jesus substituted himself for you personally and died painfully in your place. Feeling discouraged? Remember the gospel. Jesus actually was willing to fulfill the Mosaic law by permanently re uh, removing the cause of God's wrath and making us blameless before God. Feeling self-righteous? Remember the gospel. Only Jesus could redeem you by paying the judicial penalty of your sin and liberating you from its penalty. Feeling hopeless? Remember the gospel. Jesus reconciled the divine relationship between you and God, which resulted in eternal life for your soul. Feeling afflicted? Remember the gospel. Jesus canceled your certificate of debt and took away the force of any accusation by Satan to make you innocent before God. You know, Jesus says, follow me. And for me, in the Greek, this put this passage into a whole new light for me. The transliteration here is a kulotheo, which means I accompany, attend, or follow. You know, when I was thinking this through, I love what this represents for me personally. It may not have the same impact on you. But looking back, growing up as a kid, I was a little bit of a dweeb. I was small. Not very athletic, incredibly poor hand-eye coordination. If I was chosen, it was always the last one to be chosen for a team. So there were occasions where I sort of kind of felt like I belonged. But for me, this, this aspect of what Jesus is saying, asking me to do here is so incredibly awesome. That it's not just a matter of me following Him, 
But he wants me to accompany him. He's going to accompany me. I mean, the idea of me being able to walk side by side with my Savior, it just blows my mind. I mean, that's present tense. He wants me to accompany Him right now. That's awesome. Not some, some vague figure off in the distance that I can't even really see. I've experienced that a lot through life. But this was such an encouragement to me out of a, a passage that can be, as we all can agree, very challenging. And with that following Him, what does He want me to do? wants me to carry that cross. See, as I accompany Jesus, the cross that once represented defeat for those restored, it's an image of victory. As I accompany Jesus, the cross that once represented guilt for those that are followers, it's an image of grace. And it just goes on and on here. Looking to the cross, something that once represented condemnation, For those that are disciples, it's an image of freedom. For those that once represented pain and suffering, for those that don't want it diluted, it's an image of healing and hope. As I accompany Jesus, the cross that once represented death, for those who believe and follow, it's now an image of life. And then ultimately, as I accompany Jesus, the cross that once was anything but attractive for those that have signed their quit-claim deed. Now it's an incredible image of beauty. You know, I've got this uh, GPS system on my phone that I'm, I'm pretty fired up about. Helps me uh, get from point A to point B very easily. You know, and uh, it's kind of interesting. When I type in the destination, the screen sometimes comes up with this thing that says, it asks me, as you can see right up here, would you like to use your current location? That's kind of cool because, in other words, what it's saying to me is, do you want to start from where you are, not from where I started out, or the direction that I should be headed, but from where I'm currently located? You know, the thing that's so incredible about Jesus, the thing that I finally realized about Christ, is when He invites you to follow, He wants you to start right now from your current location. You don't have to go back to where you started. You don't need to get a little bit closer on your own. He reaches out to you with grace and love right now, wherever you are, and He invites you to accompany Him from where you are right now. He wants you to start right now on the journey with Him back to paradise. In 2 Chronicles 16, verse 9, it says, For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to Him. You know, if you're currently studying the Bible right now, surrender. And commit to Him. He will strengthen you. You know, if you're struggling as a Christian right now, He'll meet you right where you are. Commit to Him today. He'll strengthen you. And you know what? If you're doing good as a Christian right now, today, guess what? He'll meet you right where you are today. He'll strengthen you as well. See, God wants us to accompany Him for eternity. As we sit here today and we look at that passage in Luke 9, 23, I pray that it's as encouraging to you as it was to me. We need that John 3, 16, but we need Luke 9, 23 as well. 
Let's surrender together to God so He can accompany us on our journey to paradise. Amen? God bless.